So um, 18 years ago today, uh, there were 35 of us that met at the Holiday Inn in Brockton next to the Westgate Mall. How many guys know that Holiday Inn? Raise your hand. Uh, there were 35 of us uh, that met there on, on the first, first Sunday. Um, this, is, this is a picture of us, my wife and I, on that day with our kids. And in my head, I am still just as sexy. And if it's not true, don't tell me and be a jerk. Uh, and then my wife is probably the one that still looks the most the same, right? Uh, Garrett, uh, the dude in the, the red plaid, well, they're both wearing, uh, the dude standing in front of me, he's now 28, uh, married a girl who came to faith in Jesus in our student ministry here at Grace Church from Stoughton High, uh, Lauren, um, is, and, and Garrett works for MANA, the missions organization, and his wife is studying educational policy. doesn't matter. This, this is not a Sean thing, but um, then, I mean, it is for a minute. Um, but then Lauren is a labor and delivery nurse, and she married a dude who came to faith in Jesus uh, from Brockton High here at Grace. And Ryan up there is not married. He better not be, or I will kill him. Um, Ryan, the dude I'm holding, is now 20. He's six foot four. And he's the starting center back for his college soccer team. And they won regionals yesterday. And this Saturday, they're playing in Orlando for national championship. And I, I asked Ryan if I could recreate that picture with him. And he said in a really low voice, no. <laughs> like that. Yeah, but he's, he's a giant. Um, and, and anyway, so there's, there's uh, 30. You can take the picture down. But they're, they're, please take the picture down. Um, yeah, so eight, 18, 18 years ago, uh, Brian Buford, uh, some of you guys know Brian, he's the uh, ball-headed dude with a, a chin beard. Uh, I guess most beards are on your chin. <laughs> his is only on his chin. Um, a bald white dude. Uh, he was a 20-year-old, helped us with the, the church. Carlos and Michelle, some of you guys know Carlos and Michelle, he's actually on our, our trustee board. Uh, Carlos, he was there that first. So there's just not a lot. People move away and get married and stuff. Was mainly college kids, actually, when we started the church. And then non-religious uh, people, like our, our neighbors across the street, actually. Uh, Glenn and Tiffany were our closest friends. Uh, my wife and I are both preacher's kids. We were raised in Christian schools and lived in a Christian bubble our whole life. Went to a Christian college and all that stuff. And then um, didn't have, like, close friends that didn't share a worldview until we moved to Stoughton. And then nobody did. And so, like, that was the first time where I think, spiritually speaking, I had a lot of skin in the game. I was like, oh, my gosh. My, all of my friends are, like, spiritually, like, just disconnected or struggling. And so we began praying that God would, God would send somebody. And, and God, God didn't. I would call all of my buddies I went to Bible college with and uh, say, hey, man, you need to come here and start a church. And they're like, um, no. I don't think so. We're, we're okay. And then we're at the Dunkin' Donuts in Mansfield when my wife, Billy Jane, she said, um, maybe God already sent somebody. And I said, who? She goes, maybe it's us. And I said, Chick, you are smoking crack. <laughs> I know I said that. That's not an exaggeration or a joke because the next statement was, I still use the word crack in sentences. That's why it can't be me. So I wasn't like, she thought maybe God, this is what God wants us to do, but I, I, I don't know, man. That just sounds like a really culty thing to do. Like, that's weird, right? Who's, who just goes out and starts a church? By the way, our church was sponsored by Cape Cod Church. They're in, um, uh, they're in um, uh, East Ticket Highway in uh, Falmouth. 
Uh, East Falmouth is where uh, Cape Cod Church is. So they're like, like people reproduce people and churches reproduce churches. So our church was sponsored by another church. That's really important uh, to make sure that our theological statement is, is biblically consistent and that our structure is healthy and also biblical and make sure that we do everything uh, right legally with the IRS and all that kind of stuff. So uh, they were our sponsors. So I'm thankful to God uh, for them. But we met at the Holiday Inn for the first time, um, like I said, 18 years ago. We were in their little ballroom. I mean, to call it a ballroom is a stretch. Um, and the kids' ministry classes were actually in the hallway. Now, you saw my son was nine years old, 10 years old. Garrett was at the time uh, when we started Grace Church. Actually, he had just turned 10 uh, in, that, in that picture. And because uh, it was 2005, he was born in 95. Uh, so he's 10 years old. And in this one particular weekend, when Brian Buford was actually teaching all the kids' classes, we had three bikini-clad women walk right through the Sunday school lesson on their way to the pool. And that was not distracting at all for all of the 10-year-old prepubescent boys in that class. So, yeah, they didn't think about Jesus anymore <laughs> the rest of that day. After that, we moved to um, Lombardo's and Randolph. Anybody know Lombardo's and Randolph? If you don't know Lombardo's, you might know, uh, what's the name of that nightclub in the back? What's the name of that? I knew you'd know. Gotcha. <laughs> Oh, that feels so good when you intentionally do a setup like that. Don't worry about it. She's an alcoholic. Pray for her. Our big dream was that someday 300 people would show up. That was the big dream. If 300 people would come to church, that'd be awesome. Because my wife uh, grew up in a church that was never bigger than 85. That was like the, like that's her whole church experience was in a church of 85. My whole church experience growing up was in a church that never got over 200. So whatever grace has become has terrified me all along the way uh, because it's, it's more than what, um, it, what either one of our experience was. And the reason why 300 was like the big dream for us was because the average church in America has 100 and the average church in New England is 40. Do you guys know that? The average church in New England is less than half the average size of a church anywhere else in America. And there are fewer churches per person here than anywhere else in America. Um, so like, oh my gosh, if like, cause like when we thought of 300, that 300 represented a certain percentage of the people that we were thinking of when you raised your hand a minute ago, right? That 300 would have included a lot of our actual friends. And it did like our neighbors in front of us and behind us in catacorn. Did I already tell you guys that? Like, like different neighbors have come to faith in Jesus, which is, which is like, that's what that 300 would represent. But like what we were dreaming of, and my experience, and I don't know why this constantly shocks me, but whatever my plan is for my life, God's plan is usually better and more beautiful, right? It's better and, and more, more beautiful is what has, has been. And, 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 that, and I don't usually recognize that until afterwards, but my life will be going in some direction and then I'll have an opportunity. And I can keep going in that direction. There'd be nothing wrong with it but there'll be an opportunity for me to like take a bigger risk, something that's a little bit scarier. And whenever I do that, because I think that God might be in it, it's, it's terrifying, but that's usually the choice that ends me to that place. Like Robert Frost talks about that path in the woods that divided and he took the road less what? Took the road less traveled. Well, it's less traveled because it's scarier. If it was more comfortable, then it would be the road more traveled. Well, then Jesus talked about that. Jesus said that the wide is the road and wide is the gate that leads to destruction because of the number of people that take that path. 
And he said, as narrow is the path and narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life because of the few that take it, because it's a harder path to take. Because Jesus said that anybody who wants to come after me, he said that's in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. He said, must deny themselves, must take up an actual cross. Like that's a symbol of personal sacrifice to follow me. So the only people that will take that path are one, people who are incredibly self-aware, but also humble and are willing to submit themselves to the authority of God. And those are difficult things to do. And it's a scary thing to say, God, this is the plan that I have for my life, but whatever you want is what I want instead. Like, that's, that's terrifying. And, and that's what makes that so hard. But choosing that, that, that terrifying um, path, the one that costs you more, always gets you to a place where you look back and go, that was, that was better, and it ended up being more beautiful. So 19 years ago, I was a professor at a college in the city, and I was a volunteer youth pastor at a church on the west side. Uh, where, where were you 19 years ago? Some of you guys were in another church. Some of you guys weren't in church at all. Some of you guys weren't even born, right? Our church trends young, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, but 19 years ago, uh, you weren't a part of this church family, and neither, neither was I. Uh, and then four years before that, I wasn't even in New England. I was a youth pastor in Denver. And that whole journey started when I was 14. So um, I lived in Orlando. I was born in Pensacola, raised in Orlando. And my wife's from Lakeland, uh, which is halfway between Disney and Tampa. And um, uh, my granddad lived in Detroit and was a pastor up there. And he had bone cancer. And they had given him like two, three weeks to live. So my dad took a whole month off of work. And our whole family drove up to Detroit to wait for my granddad to die. And I, the first week we were there, um, I, all I remember about the hospital, I remember him, I can, like, I, I can picture him in the bed, and the window, like he was facing this way, and the window was on the other side, the TV was right here, and he loved the Olympics. So it was Summer Olympics, so it was that summer um, that it, the, the, of the Olympics. And uh, by the end of the week, he was still hanging on strong, and somebody in his church, he was a pastor, volunteered to pay for me to go to camp. Uh, to church camp. And so my dad said, you want to go to church camp? And I was like, I don't want to hang out in the hospital for the next four weeks. So yes, I went to church camp. And then Monday night, I don't remember anything about Monday, don't remember anything about Tuesday. But Wednesday is the day. So Wednesday night, a guy named Frank Lidke, who's still a pastor of a church in Texas, um, was preaching. And he was hilarious, man. And he was doing David and Goliath. And whenever he was doing Goliath, he would stand on a chair. And whenever he was doing Goli uh, David, he would get on his knees. And that in and of itself isn't funny, but it was just the way that he was, you know, like telling the story. It was, it was hilarious. And, and what I remember from that is that the point that he was making in the sermon is that David never heard a voice from God to fight Goliath. Like if you read the story I mean, the only time the name God comes up is when David goes, he's making fun of the God of the armies of Israel. Somebody needs to do something. God didn't say, David, go do this. God didn't tell Samuel to go tell David to do this. And David actually wasn't even supposed to be there that day because he wasn't in the army. Uh, David wasn't old enough to be in the army. That's why most people think he was about 13 or 14 years old. I was 14 when I'm hearing this. And um, so David's 13 or 14 years old, and his dad, Jesse, says, go take these 10 cheeses to the captain of the army and see how your brothers are doing. So he goes, he gives the 10 cheeses, and that's when he hears Goliath challenging the God of the armies of Israel. And he says, somebody ought to do something about this, and nobody is doing it. And then finally, David volunteers. Now, God never told David to do this. David just volunteered. Now, his oldest brother, I know his name is Eliab, 
If Eliab had volunteered, I think we'd be telling the story of Eliab and Goliath. Because I don't think David was the thing. I think God's the thing. And God was just looking for somebody to volunteer. Now, God didn't tell any of them to do it. But all of them could have. But none of them did. Until one did. And he was the most underqualified. He's the only one who had no military experience. And Goliath had been a man of war since he was a teenager. So I don't know, how old is he? In his late 20s, 30s? He's got two decades worth of battle scars. Going against a kid who's not even big enough to wear Saul's helmet on his head without it hurting his neck. And then, but here we are today telling the story of David and Goliath. Why? Because David volunteered. And the point that he was making in the sermon is that some of you guys are waiting for God to miraculously speak to you about something, and God's just waiting on you to volunteer. And I think that's true for you. I think there's some of us who are sitting here stuck in our life, and like if God would say something, then I would do something different. And I, I don't, I think you're going to be just sitting here stuck for the rest of your life. I think that's true for some of you. I, I, I think it would be true for me. I, in in, in um, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, the Bible says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And if you're not doing anything that scares you right now, then can you say that you're actually living by faith? Because it didn't take faith to come to church today. You live in America. Now, if this church was in Afghanistan and you showed up, that would take some faith, right? It didn't take any faith to show up. Like, I don't know that it's possible to live by faith if you're not risking anything, right? And that's the thing. Risk is counterintuitive because what every one of us want, me too, is comfort. I want a comfortable life. I'm just saying I think comfort is the enemy of significant, right? Like I think you're going to settle for a comfortable life and you're going to miss the life that God created you for, which would be horrible. Now, I don't think God will do this on Judgment Day because I think it would be unbelievably cruel and God isn't cruel. But if I stood before God on Judgment Day and he said, Sean, good job, but let me show you the life you could have had. Like that would suck, Right? Yes or no? Right. Like, what's keeping me from that? It's comfort. That's the only thing. Like, if God, like, look at all of the people that God made rock stars out of in the Bible, and they're all the less thans. The whole Bible is filled with it. The Apostle Paul even points it out when he says in either 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where he says, look among yourselves, not many wise or noble or wealthy or powerful or chosen. Why? Because they would take credit. God intentionally goes after the last pick and dodgeball. Because when they're the last man standing and they beat the other team, they go, there must be a God because that guy's an idiot. Right? Like God specializes in using anybody who would say, my yes is on the table for anything you ask. Anything. There's nothing you could ask me to do that I won't do. There's nothing you could ask me to give I won't give. And there's no place you can ask me to go that I won't go. I am 100. And that, that is a stinking, scary prayer to pray. So I'm in Denver. I'm a youth pastor. And uh, I've been there for eight years. And all the things that I cared about as a 31-year-old were being run by kids that had been in my youth ministry. So I get free supersize everything at anything I go to because my kid's on the other side of the counter. They're running the cash register. I'd get into any movie I wanted because there's a teenager in my youth group who was the assistant manager who'd give me one of their free tickets. I got free oil changes at Big O Tire 
because one of the kids in my youth group worked at Big O Tire. I had the hookup everywhere. And I told my wife, I made the mistake of saying to my wife, I feel like I could do this with my eyes closed. Because that's where I was at. Like everything's going to, and I don't think there's anything wrong with planning out your life. I think you're a fool if you don't. The Bible says that man makes his plans, but God directs his steps. I think the problem is when we make our plans and cement. We draw our sand, we draw our plans and sand, and we let God change them. Does that make sense? So I, I, think you're, I think you're foolish if you're not planning for retirement. I think you're foolish if you're not planning to leave an inheritance. Like, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing side hustles or real estate or investment properties or starting a, a side painting business. And like, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I think at some point, those things become the objective and not the glory of God. And when God calls us to do something that causes that to change, we tell God to beat it. Because this becomes, I think, I think that's the thing. And then the problem is that I preached a sermon to our teenagers that the Holy Spirit uh, choked me out on, right? Like everything I was saying to the teenagers, God turned back around on me. And that's what I want to share with you guys today. So if you've got your Bible, go to Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. In the first 12 chapters, Jesus finds out that John the Baptist, his cousin, his biological cousin and closest friend, has been murdered. He's been executed, not murdered. He's executed the, he, by King Herod. So it's technically not a murder, it's an execution because he's the king, he has the right to do that. So uh, according to their laws. So um, John the Baptist obviously had never read How to Win Friends and Influence People. So when King Herod invites him, hey, you're famous, come give me a sample sermon. Uh, John the Baptist comes into the throne room of King Herod and opens up with, uh, hey, bro, you're sleeping with your sister's wife, and that's a sin. You need to repent of your sin and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, King Herod didn't like that. Uh, the woman he was sleeping with didn't like it even more. And she's the one that manipulated King Herod to actually uh, take his head off. And Jesus finds out about this. It's his closest friend. Uh, they were biological cousins. They lived in the same region. And so every year, the Jewish families would all go to Jerusalem for Passover, and they would travel in caravans so that they wouldn't be robbed. You're familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan where the guy was robbed and left for dead. That's what happens when you would travel in that side of the world at that time in human history without a crowd. So Jesus, with Mary and Joseph and his other seven half-siblings, and uh, we know from Mark, I think it's chapter 5, that Jesus had five biological brothers. They were half-brothers because those guys were Joseph's kids. Joseph was not his biological father, even though Mary was. Some of you guys are just now finding out that Mary wasn't a perpetual virgin because she had at least seven other kids. And we know that he had sisters. We don't have their name, but they says sisters, plural, so there's at least two. So we have the names of five of Jesus' half-brother and sisters. So Jesus was the oldest of eight. So their family would have been traveling with all of their other distant relatives. Well, John the Baptist was six months older than him. So every year, they would have at least taken that trip together. So they would have played together since they're cousins and they're the same age. This is his best friend. And he find, and, and by the way, John the Baptist is the one who goes, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist actually knows who Jesus is, even if nobody else knew yet. So like this is the one guy in the world who gets him, and Jesus finds out he's been executed. What would you do? Jesus just wants a day off. 
And I think that that's a reasonable request. Right? Yes or no? He just wants to be by himself to mourn, man. Like any one of us. I just, I want to mourn. I don't want to just be alone. I just want to pray. And I just need to wrap my head around this. And that's where we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. As soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat in a remote area to be alone. But the crowds heard where he was going and uh, followed him on foot from many towns. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he was stepping out of the boat when he got to where he was going. And if Jesus had said, listen, please not today, right? And then if he explained, my cousin and closest friend was killed yesterday, I think everybody would have said, we get it. We, like, right? I don't think anybody would have been a jerk about that. Who would? Like, so the one day where Jesus had a right to take a day off, this is the day. So if there's any day that Jesus is going to get some Jesus time, it's this day. Watch what happens. He sees a huge crowd, and he feels compassion on them, and instead he spends the entire day. So Jesus' plan was to go to this place and be that day all by himself. That was the direction Jesus was planning to go for that day. So this one day, this is all I'm going to do. But when Jesus gets to that day and and gets out of the boat, he voluntarily chooses to do something that's going to take a lot more from him than what he was intending. And he didn't have to. Like, it wouldn't have been sin for Jesus to send the crowds away. In fact, there's other places where Jesus does send the crowds away. So that's not a sin for Jesus to have sent the crowds home, especially considering the circumstances. So what Jesus does is his life is going this direction, and instead, God the Father doesn't say, Jesus, you need to do this. Neither does anybody in the crowd say, hey, would you please do this instead? Jesus takes the initiative on his own to choose a path that's going to cost him something a little bit more, and here's what happens next. Jesus saw the huge crowd, verse 14, as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. That evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. So he spends all day long healing them, which had to be exhausting. My daughter, as I said, is a nurse, and I'm married to a wife who is also a mom. And taking care of people all day long is exhausting. I was expecting more amens than that, ladies. Just putting that out there. That was a gimme. Um, So uh, all day long. This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. And Jesus says, nope. I want you to have them sit down in groups of 50. And then what happens next? Does anybody have a guess? It's called the feeding of the 5,000. What he does is he has them sit down in groups of 50. And there's a little boy who's not asked, but he volunteers his five loaves and two fishes. And Jesus, and the Bible says there's 5,000 men plus women and children. So if there's one woman and one child for every one man, 15,000 people are fed that day. Now, the feeding of 15,000 wasn't actually supposed to happen. The feeding of the 5,000, that wasn't even supposed to happen. What was supposed to happen that day is that Jesus was going to spend the whole day off. That was going to be his day off. So we actually only have the story of the feeding of 5,000 because Jesus volunteered to do something more that would cost him something more. And so Jesus got something more as a result. So all, 50, all, all 5,000 men plus women and children, I'm assuming it's 15,000. I don't know. It could be more. Some people estimate as high as 20. We don't know. 5,000 men plus women and children are all fed from one kid's sack lunch. And at the end of that story, we get down to verse uh, 22. 
Immediately after this, the after this is the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus, uh, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross back to where they came from on the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray and Jesus finally gets some Jesus time. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, verse 24, the disciples were in trouble far away from land for a strong wind had risen and they were fighting the heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. And right here, the skeptic in me goes, I don't know about that. Right? That's like myth and legend kind of a thought. That's, that's the first thing that pops into my head. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a, of a skeptic um, myself. And um, so we, we hear that and we go, I don't, like, did that? But did that really happen? Right? Um, and and here's, here's actually why I think it did. Uh, watch what happens next. Uh, so, meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land. Verse 25, about 3 o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, now, if they're making up the story, how do you think that they would make that go? If they're making up the story, they saw Jesus walking out on the water, and they would worship him. Oh, my gosh, there's the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has even power over the wind and the waves. This is amazing. Jesus get in the boat, and then he would calm the water, and everything would be awesome. And this is more proof that Jesus is God. That's how I would have written it if I was making it up. I wouldn't have written what's actually written here. Because if I actually saw some dude, if this really did happen and Jesus was walking on the water and I saw him walking on the water, my first thought wouldn't be, that's Jesus walking on the water. I would say, I need to stop smoking weed. That's what I would say. <laughs> I don't smoke weed, probably need to put that out there first. I'm just saying, I ate some bad pizza. My first thought isn't gonna be, that's Jesus walking on the water. I'm going to go, remember that little kid that like got back from the dentist? Is this real life? Anybody remember that kid? Uh, he's a meme now, but anyway, um, that's what I would be. I, I, if I saw Jesus walking on the water, I'd go, is this real life? Like, this is crazy. So when they saw Jesus, that's the exact same, the response they had is the exact same response you would have if Jesus really was walking on the water and you saw him. Here's what happens. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they pooped their pants. It's in the Greek. It's in the Greek. They were terrified, and in their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. What else would they say? If you actually saw this happening, you would also not believe it's real. They did not believe it was real. That is a normal response to what they're seeing, which is the reason why I think it's what actually happened, because what they wrote is... Not what they would have actually written if they were making the whole thing up, but they wrote it this way because it's probably what actually happened. So Peter does this, uh, verse, uh, excuse me, verse 27, but Jesus spoke to them at once, don't be afraid, take courage, it's me, I'm here, it's Jesus. And then Peter comes up with a brilliant plan to prove whether or not it's Jesus. He asked this ghost to tell him to get out of the boat and die and become a ghost also which is what a ghost would tell you to do, right? Yes or no? Like, I'm thinking he didn't think this test through. So here's what he says. Then Peter called out to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. And Jesus said, yes, come on. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus and becomes only the second human being in all of human history to actually walk on water, which is crazy. And I've got a few observations. The first observation is this. All of the disciples were already being obedient to Jesus. Jesus told them to get in the boat and row to the other side. What were they doing? They were in the boat doing what? Rowing to the other side. 
So all 12 disciples were already being obedient. The second thing I notice is that God doesn't initiate this opportunity for Peter to walk on water. Jesus doesn't come up with the idea of this. Peter could have stayed in the boat and it would not have been sinful. Peter could have just done what everybody else was doing and Peter would have gotten what everybody else was getting and the story would have gone. Jesus came out to them at three o'clock in the morning in the storm and then Jesus got in the boat with them and he said, peace be still and the wind was still again. That's how the story would have gone because Jesus ends up getting in the boat but now he's getting in the boat with Peter and then the storm goes away. So the story changed. Like all day long, the story's different. Because the only thing that was supposed to happen today was Jesus being by himself, getting some Jesus time because his closest friend in the world had been killed. But because Jesus volunteered to do more, to give more, and to go farther, 15,000 people's lives are... The Romans heard about this story, by the way. And Peter ends up walking on water. Like all of these amazing things happen. Like everything got better and more beautiful because Jesus and then Peter volunteered to do something more that would cost them more than what anybody else was willing to pay and to go where other people weren't willing to go and to do what other people weren't willing to do. So they got what nobody else got. So here's the thing. Nobody in this room will ever get an above average life making average choices. And if you want extraordinary, you have to do extra of the ordinary to get extraordinary. Like, I think you can just keep going, right? And fine, that's not sin. Unless you're meant for more. Like, you can sit in the rowboat for the rest of your life and it's not sinful to stay in the rowboat. But bro, what if you were made to freaking walk on water and all you ever did was sit in a freaking boat? Like, that would be horrible. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And you don't need faith unless you're doing something scary. Right? Yes or no? Yes. Billy Jane and I are in Denver, and there's, there's a few times in my life, where, and you have some examples also, so I'm not the only person in the room who's had this experience with God. And if we'd have stayed in Denver, I know what it would have been. Because the pastor that I was working with ended up leaving six months later. Two years later, I heard him say, I wish that Sean was still our youth pastor because then we could have made him pastor. And I'd be the pastor of Westland Baptist Church in Lakeland, Colorado, Lakewood, Colorado, on the corner of Kipling and Alameda. And I think God would have blessed. Why? Because if God blesses you, it's because of the condition of the heart, not the location of your butt. Right? It's not rocket science. We're praying and we're asking God, what do you want me to do? And we're afraid to make the wrong choice. Because what if I do this and it's the wrong thing and then the rest of my life is screwed up? No, like I don't think, like if you want to work there, work there. If you want to work here, work here. If God will bless you if you work here, God will bless you if you work there. Like if God blesses you, it's because of the condition of your heart, not the location of your butt. Are you with me? The question is, which place do you think would bring God most glory and do that one? And often that is the scarier choice. So we sold our house in Denver Everything's going fine until I read the story of Peter walking on the water because he got out of the boat. And I felt like my whole life had been spent in a freaking rowboat. I just want to do what's comfortable, what makes my life comfortable, what makes my life comfortable, what makes my life comfortable. But what if God is out there in the waves? I would rather be out there with him where the action is.
I want stories to tell, man. You know what I mean? I want to get to the end of my life with no more gas in my tank. I don't want to die with a half a tank of gas left. Are you kidding me? You know what I mean? Tread on the tires. Man, I played football and I sucked. There's nothing more embarrassing than getting on the team bus with no grass stains on your jersey. So when I knew I wasn't going to play and we're doing the calisthenics in the grass, I'm scooting my butt on the grass, my knee pads. I'm picking scabs so I can put the blood on my knee pads like all the cool guys. Nobody wants to get on the bus with a clean jersey. Like if you're out there, dang it, like you want to get blood and guts and dirt in your pants, you know what I mean? I don't want to go to heaven and Jesus go, he doesn't need his jersey washed. Right? This is my life, but this is the one he created me for. But that one is terrifying. But that one needs faith, and it's the reason why he blesses this one, and he does, I don't know if he does on this one. I mean, I'd be fine. I'd be in Denver right now, which is fine. <laughs> but the story he had was better and more beautiful. And like, I could have almost missed it. And I never knew you're waiting for God to speak to you. So was I. We're in Denver and everything's going great and I've got a salary and if I come out to Boston to work at this stupid Bible college, they're going to pay me. It's going to be a $2,000 a year cut and pay and it's more expensive to live here. And I don't know anybody in New England and it's so far away. But you got the Celtics and I've always loved the Celtics. <laughs> and Jesus is blessing the Celtics right now. I just want to put that out there. Um, <laughs> so we sell everything. We got everything in a U-Haul. We, we, rented, we rented a U-Haul, broke down three times. And I'm not going to tell you what I really think about U-Haul because I don't want to be sued for libel. <laughs> but man, if there's other options, even if it costs more, I'm just going to say that. All right, anyway, um, we're broken down for the third time in Sandusky, Ohio. The coincidence of that being also the first place I ever rode a roller coaster at Cedar Point is the reason why I remember that. And it's the third time we're broken down. Now, when we left Denver, I was 100% confident this is what God wanted. I was, no, I was 90% confident. I was asking God to give me a sign on whether or not. My wife was like, I think God wants it. I said, what do you think? She goes, I don't know, because we were offered a job. Uh, what do you think? And because uh, I, was, I, wasn't, like, I wasn't unhappy at this other job. Like, I loved the church I was at. I loved the teenagers that we worked with. And she says, well, my gut says that we should probably be in Boston. I was like, I'm just not, I don't know. Like, I don't, I'm not ready to say that yet. And I just, I, I need some kind of a sign from God. And I'm using a level because I had made some shelves. They suck, but I made them. They're beautiful. So, and I've got a level and I'm trying to make them nice on the wall. And I'm, I'm going to mark the line where the bottom of the shelf goes so that they're even with each other. And then um, I say, I just wish God would give me a sign. And I looked at this level that I've owned for 12 years and it says right in the middle, right in front of my face, I need a sign, and it's right here, and it says, made in Boston, Massachusetts. So, stop, well, hold on. I sold my house and quit my job because the stupid level was made in Boston. I don't know if that's a good life plan. So you can't say that I was sure it's what God wanted us to do. And every time we broke down, my percentage dropped. So we're, 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 this is the last time that we're broken down, and I say to Billy Jane, I'm, I'm only 75% sure we're doing the right thing, which you probably shouldn't tell your wife when you got two little babies and you just quit and moved. And, but she 
if she has a spirit of discernment and is one of the most godly people I've ever met in my life. And she put gas in my tank. She said, if we're doing the wrong thing, if we're doing the wrong thing, at least we're doing the wrong thing for the right reason, and I think God can bless that. So I'm worried about, and it's not that I was doing the sinful thing. God doesn't bless sin. I'm just saying, like, you're waiting for God to tell you something, and I think God's waiting on you to just freaking pick. Volunteer, bro. Just, God never told David to fight Goliath. He had no business doing it, but nobody else is. So God, if you want me to fight Goliath, I'm 14. I've never fought another person in my life, but this ain't right. Somebody needs to do something. I'll do it. God, if that's you, then just tell me to get out of the boat and I'll get out of the boat. Like, just dare God. God, if you, my yes is on the table. You just put any crazy idea you want in my head. And, and God's never spoken audibly to me. It's just like a thought that pops into my head and it just grows bigger and bigger and bigger. Like the week before this week is Halloween, the week before our first Sunday was Halloween. And my buddy Carlos, I didn't tell you guys this right now, did I? Okay, so Carlos, uh, his son Jacob and Garrett were in second grade soccer together. And so Carlos and I would just stand next to each other while we're watching Colum from Northern Ireland coach our kids in soccer. And so I'm like, hey, what's up, what's up, what's up? And that's, that's it. But we're like, what's up, buddies? Right? You got some what's up, buddies. Um, and now he's standing on my front porch. Church is starting this coming Sunday at the Holiday Inn. And Carlos is on my porch. I'm like, hey, Jacob. And like the idea is like, you should invite them to church this Sunday. And I'm like, uh, but I actually know him. And he's going to think I'm a weirdo. So no, I'm not going to do that. It's not a voice from God. It was just an idea. The idea was I should ask him to come to church. And I'm like, no, because I'm going to see him tomorrow at soccer. And he's going to think I'm a weirdo. And he won't talk to me anymore. And so he's walking across the street to Glenn and Tiffany, and they were part of our church. I'm like, they'll ask him. So I watch, I watch Jacob and, and Carlos. And Michelle was on the sidewalk, go across the street, and I'm watching from the window for Glenn and Tiffany to invite uh, Carlos to church. And they don't. They just do the candy. Oh, no, 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 no. Like, jerks, why didn't they invite him to church? And then the thought was like, well, then, like, if, why should they if you won't? Right? And I'm, that's not a voice from God. It was just a thought in my head. And, and I was like, well, I'm not going to now because they've already left my house. It would be weirder now. And he was like, well, you could have done it when it was here. But I'm like, but they're not here now. They're right there. But they're still right there. You could go ask them. Anybody, have, anybody else ever, ever have this happen in your head? So I don't know if this is God or not. I don't. It's just a thought. That's all it is. It's just a thought. And I'm like, well, now they're two doors down. That would be really weird. But you can still see them. I know, but they're, it's too late now. How is it too late if you can still see them? And like, I realize I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight unless I do this. So I leave the house, run across the street, run down the block. Hey. Hey, surprise, I'm religious. So I was like, hey, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but we're starting a church this Sunday at the Holiday Inn in Brockton, and it'd be great. And would love it if you guys could come, but probably not, and that's okay. Bye-bye. Like, dudes, remember the first time you asked a girl out? You're like, hey, you want to go out with me? Probably not, but okay. <laughs> remember that? That's how I felt. So it was like, hey, you guys, uh, we're starting a church this Sunday. Don't know if you know that or not, but I'm a pastor, and it's going to start this Sunday. It's at 10 o'clock at the Holiday Inn. It'd be cool if you guys came. Uh, Michelle slapped Carlos on the arm, uh, as she often does, and um, 
said, we were just talking this week on how we need to find a church so that we can get the boys uh, into a church. Now, I didn't know they'd had that conversation that week. Who did? Who did? God. And I didn't hear a voice from God. I saw a level made in Boston. And I sold a house over that one. If I can just get to 75% sure, homeboy's going to jump off the high dive. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's it. Is you need to pray bigger prayers if you want God to do bigger things. And some of you are stuck because you, you won't jump off the high dive. One of the things I loved most as a kid was when my kids were up on the hop top bunk or they were on a ladder or on scaffolding when we were modeling any one of the buildings that Grace Church has been in. And I would go like this and my boys would jump into the air because they were 100% confident in something that hadn't happened yet. And that's that daddy would catch them. But there's nothing that pleases a dad more than doing this and their kid trusting them enough to just leap into space. Like that's utter trust and love. And as a father, it fills you with just, oh my gosh. Like it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Why wouldn't God want that from us all the time? And the problem is, I think half of us are just going to spend the rest of our life standing on a ladder. When you could have done something freaking awesome and you were just too scared. So all I want you to do today, I mean, some of you guys, let's be honest, you're not even in the boat yet. You believe in God and stuff, but for some reason you've been holding out. And you're still running. And I don't know why. Like, what are you waiting on? Like, at some point, you're going to have to get to the end of your own pride and humble yourself. God, I need you to forgive me for the sin I've committed against others and against you. Jesus, save me from it. I will not carry this shame anymore because my sin has been paid for by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You rose from the dead with a new life. Dang it, I need that new start in life. God, reset button right now. I'm your man. I'm your, I'm your girl. And then get your butt in the boat with God. Now, if you want to spend the rest of your life just rowing, row, row away, you're obeying God, that's great. But I'm telling you, you might be meant for water walking. So at some point, first you need to decide if you're rowing or not. Some of you, I mean, don't ask for God to give you something big when you're already disobeying little stuff. So you need to ask yourself, is there any sin in my life? Something God's asked me to do I haven't done or something God's asked me to stop doing that I'm still doing. Like, row. First, just start doing the right thing. And if you're in that spot, then your prayer is, God, if you tell me to get out of the boat, I'll get out of the boat. I, I just think you guys are meant for water walking. Don't spend the rest of your life in the boat. Let's pray. God, I love you with all of my heart, and I'm thankful that you love us most and you love us first. God, I know that there is an intended life for us. Because Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that, that we are your workmanship. We are a masterpiece created for good works that you prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. But that's going to require obedience and faith. Obedience requires humility, and that's hard. And faith requires me letting go of comfort, and that's hard. So God, it's counterintuitive for me to end up where you want me. And that's why I need you. I'm thankful that you convict me of sin, that you show me the things that are wrong in my life that I need to let go of. Otherwise, I would just stay doing them for the rest of my life. And maybe God's convicted you of something that you need to let go of.
What is it? What's the sin you need to let go of? I don't know, maybe you're not even in the boat yet. You're just on the beach. And you don't have to be. So your prayer is, God, I just want to be with you. Take away my sin. Help me to follow you with the rest of my life. Can you make that your prayer? If you can, then do it. Now's your chance. Jesus, take away my sin. Forgive me for all of it. Clean my heart. Give me a clean slate. I need a do-over. Forgive me and save me. I don't know. Like It's not the words. It's the faith that saves you. It's not the words. Will you give God your heart and your life, yes or no? Then tell him. Can you look down, everybody bow your head, nobody looking around. How many guys would say, Sean, that is my prayer today. I'm giving my life to God to follow Jesus with the rest of my life. If that's you, put your hand up and write back down real quick. Thank you for sharing that. Now the question is, is there any pattern of sin that you've allowed to creep into your life? What is it? What is the thing you need to repent of and let go of? What is that? I don't know. But don't let that rob you from the better and beautiful thing that God has planned. There is something God has planned for you, and I'd hate for you to miss it because of this. And if there's nothing you can think of, then I think you're in the right spot. Because now your prayer is, God, you give me an idea, and I'm telling you, you already have my yes. Make that your prayer. God, put something in my heart. You got my yes. God, be pleased with our attitude right now, our heart, the way we feel about you. Help us to trust you enough, to obey you enough, to give you the rest of us. Let every one of us live amazing, scary, thrilling lives. Let us get to the end with no gas in the tank and blood and dirt on our knee pads. That'll be awesome. God, don't let us miss nothing. That's my prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name, and we all say it together. Amen. Amen.